Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. All right, Cass, I'm just going to throw some names out there at you. Missy Elliott, Will Smith, Busta Rhymes, Foxy Brown, P. Diddy, the Notorious B.I.G., Mary J. Blige, Pharrell Williams, and Jay-Z. So, Aside from being artists working in the genre of rap or hip-hop, what do all of these artists have in common? Well, it happens that many of their looks that you know and love have been the creative vision of today's guest. Yes, today we are so excited to be joined by the one and only June Ambrose, who for more than 20 years now has been shaping the future of fashion behind the scenes, designing and styling more than 200 music videos. June's creative vision brought sportswear to luxury, and it can be argued that she planted the seeds for contemporary sneaker culture, an industry that in 2020 was valued at, you know, just a small amount, $79 billion. Yeah. A cool $79 billion (laughs) idea to bring kicks into the world of high fashion. And about their 20-plus year working relationship and friendship, Jay-Z has said, quote, there are very few people that indisputably shift culture. And that is something that June has done for over 25 years. Her pure energy and spirit come to life through her fashion and designs, end quote. And she has been incredibly prolific as both a stylist and a designer. And now June has added a new feather to her so-called professional cap as she was recently appointed the creative director of Puma in October of 2020. And we are absolutely thrilled to have her join us today. Yes, June, thank you so much for joining us today on Dress. June, we are so thrilled to welcome you to Dress today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of our regular listeners will know that we really consider ourselves more of a history podcast. So it's a little bit of a rarity when we have a contemporary designer on the show, but we always make exceptions for living legends. Uh, Like Stephen Burroughs has been on the show. Oh, I love Stephen. Some people that are just like so amazing. So um, we extend this to you as well, because you are quite the multifaceted designer and now creative director. And I, I can't think of very many other people who have had more of a kind of like steady and profound impact on culture and fashion over the last 25 years that you have. So we're just thrilled to have you with us here today. Thank you. You sound like my uh, manager slash husband. <laughs> he's, he's, sometimes I listen to him on the phone. He's like, no one has the career and like June, you know, he's talking to people. I'm so embarrassed, but he talks about the fact that I've done over 200 music videos and, you know, it's such a different time now, you know, could you get 200 minute videos shot right now? You know, over that amount, probably not. So it was like this great time in life that we kind of captured it all. Mm -hmm. 
Before we delve into some of those music videos, perhaps, and some of your other projects, would you tell us a little bit about your early years and your education? Because if I understand correctly, you didn't study fashion in school. I didn't. Well, it was interesting because I studied, I was in performing arts. I was in a performing arts school and I, I was a theater major, dance minor, and then my elective was costume design. Hmm. So if I didn't get the role in whatever theatrical piece the school was putting on, I would take on the costume designer's role, which was great because I understood, it really helped me to understand every facet of character development and understand how important and, and an integral part of making sure that actor feels like the person they're transforming into. And I think having that experience really allowed me to bring that into the space, into the music space was a very unique place to be. But after, um, I didn't I didn't go on to study uh, fashion in high school, I mean, college or any of that. I was, I went into, I took an investment banking job in the research department. At the time, you know, uh, as things are now, you can Google everything. We didn't have the ability, well, the, well, the guys on the floor, mainly guys, a couple women sprinkled in there, very few, didn't have the ability to kind of Google and the research information. So they had to come to my library that I was putting together. So I was like kind of like the girl Friday. I was the youngest one there. Um, there weren't any, there was no one else that looked like me at the firm. So I was very kind of fortunate to have gotten the job right out of high school, to be honest. But academically, I really excelled in high school and I was I wasn't sure if college was something that I wanted to do. I really wanted to like pursue my acting career. And then I realized being at the investment banking firm, I couldn't do both because auditions were during the day. I was, you know, I did land an off-Broadway piece that I was able to, you know, work, you know, after five and go to rehearsals. But I was up until one and three in the morning getting home and then having to turn back around and be at work at 9 a.m. So it was, you know, I spent two and a half years there doing that. And I can't say that they were, they had their highs and lows. I think the high was the experience of learning, understanding business, understanding how important it is to really prepare yourself for the future and having a nest egg and understanding like how important it is to have insurance, health insurance, how important it is to have stocks that are going to appreciate, how important it is to have retirement and all of those kind of things that I didn't necessarily know would be beneficial in the future as I went on to pursue my entrepreneurial dreams. But at the time, they didn't seem like um, assets. They just seemed like things that I was just kind of, I was supposed to have, right? Mm-hmm. I think the best part about the job where I, may, I formed these really amazing friends that recognized that I was a young, you know, a young girl coming up in this space and they gave me some great advice and tips and I took those things and I built a portfolio and I understood. So when I was ready to leave, I think I was in a better position than someone going to take an internship than than the average person giving up a job to take an internship. So I was very fortunate, but this was over 20, 20 something years ago. Well, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit more about that kind of, you just kind of took a leap into the void (laughs) to follow your heart. I did. I was miserable in corporate America. It was so, (laughs) there was nothing and no one around, around me that looked or felt like creative. And I remember one day coming in and my supervisor said to me, um, I said to her, well, I was thinking maybe I need to maybe get out of the research department and maybe, because I was technically like a librarian in a sense, you know, I was organizing and creating like, you know, data for them and making the information readily available or even getting it, they would send notes and tell me what they were looking for and I would readily get it available for them so they can make the right decisions in terms of buys and sells. 
and just understand where the market was going. So finance was is, is so important to creators because we creators don't think about finance. No one wants to handle the business, but the business is how you sustain. The business is what allows you the freedom to kind of be creative. And the business doesn't take that long. So I always tell, you know, interns and assistants, handle your business, yeah. you know, because that business will allow you, afford you the creative freedom that you really need. So I think that was the gift and that was the silver lining in it all. But I was sad most of the time. And I remember asking my supervisor, well, do you think I can move to another position or move up or something? And she says, well, I'll make, I'll decide when that happens. And that didn't sit well with me. That just the idea that someone, someone could dictate that much of how I was going to grow didn't feel right Um, because I knew I had the ability to do more or I knew that I was seeking more. And I realized that I was working for the paycheck. I was getting paid to stay in check and I wanted a career and not a job. Mm -hmm. So I went off to pursue, you know, my creative endeavors and I just knew I, I could be an entrepreneur. I grew up, you know, I was born in the Caribbean in the West Indies. Everyone in the West Indies are basically entrepreneurs, mainly. You know, my mom had a, a retail store. She would always travel back and forth to Puerto Rico to purchase, you know, for her shop. And so she was somewhat, she was a buyer. She was, you know, she was doing costumes for the carnival queens and, mm. you know, dressmakers. Just, but I didn't realize all of these things were kind of naturally embedded in me until I had to swim or, you know, a sink. So, um, so um, I found my way based off of, you know, tapping into what I was really, cre- you know, what I was built on. And that was the ability to survive and the resiliency of figuring it out no matter what. And that's what I did. So what was your kind of path into working at the intersection of music and fashion? So I went to, uh, so I started to kind of reconnect with all my friends that I went to high school with and they had all either gone on to do really great things or pursue acting and, or went off to different universities, whatever. But um, some took uh, jobs at record companies and the marketing department. Some went on to be musicians. They were on tour. Some went on to be very successful actors, television, theater. And I re- reconnected with a, a high school friend of mine who um, was working at Uptown MCA in the marketing department. And I said to him, I really want to get back into a creative space. He says, well, if you want to come intern with me, you know, come on over. And I spent some time with him in the marketing department, really just kind of understanding the dynamics of music and what the needs were and how things function and work. And I felt like marketing was the perfect place. It's so interesting how life kind of, if you absorb opportunities in different ways and not expect them to be exactly what you think they're supposed to be, but extract the things that have really tangible notes. And I'm always constantly taking notes, you know, mental notes, emotional notes. I'm constantly gathering information along my, along this journey. I was, you know, it was definitely, you know, I felt like I was always seeking for answers. I would always ask questions and I was never afraid to not know. And that kind of inquisitive spirit really, um, I think, allowed me to absorb a lot of information because I didn't come with an ego. What I did come with, though, was this kind of understanding of how corporate America looks, what structure looks like, Mm -hmm. you know, what business looks like. And no matter what you're doing in life, I wanted to start a business. And even though it was going to be creative, I didn't want you to look at me like I was just some servant or helper, 
you know, I was going to bring the same savoir faire, je ne sais quoi, <laughs> and all of the glamour and everything, you know. And, and mind you, I came in, I was making very good money at investment banking. So I wasn't like, you know, so I had a certain uh, look and stature and stuff. And I, um, I carried myself in a different way. And that really helped out as well and helped them to recognize that I was different, right? And so when I would interject or raise my hand, I wasn't necessarily shooed off. And that taught me, if you look the part, you get the part, right? So now I'm tapping back into my theatrical sense memory of what I learned growing up in theater. And then in my business acumen was knowing what I wanted to, asking exactly for what I wanted. So I said, okay, I'll take this internship with you, but here's what I need. And I was very matter of fact. And I think those, you know, having those two, the ability to be humble, but direct and look the part really was a great combination to navigate my way through a very short-term lived uh, internship, just enough for me to gather what I need. And then I made some really great connections. I met some artists that I was then able to step outside of the company and acquire them as clients. One person, I just needed one person to give me a shot at working with them. And I found that one person, it was an artist that had a single deal. It wasn't a big time, anybody, you know, big artist, whatever, but he had a single contract with Sony Music, wasn't even at the record company. Now, mind you, at this record company, this was Andre Harrell's label, the late Andre Harrell. Puffy, Sean Puffy Combs was just getting his position from internship and moving into the A&R. And I remember, you know, connecting with him and, you know, walking into his office and seeing Colecciones magazines, European <laughs> desk. So he always, you know, he was a dreamer like me and we completely connected and I helped him write his first bio and you know, I was just fearless. I was just never afraid to walk into the room and I, I didn't allow the room to shrink me. Mm-hmm. I had, you know, and I think that that's something that I always try to share with people, young people coming in who are afraid of the, of their own shadow. They get in their own way. I'm, I'm like, there's no room that's ever going to be too big for you. You know, you have to allow, let the room absorb your personality. Don't let, don't absorb the room because the end, there's too much energy. And you, it can take you where you don't want to go and it can create fear. So if you go in just being you, uh, it gives you that confidence. Again, tapping in to my method acting, you know, classes that I took for years. All of those things really helped me personally. And then I was able, once I started getting it, once I, I started getting into styling and I always took a costume designer's approach to styling. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it wasn't like, I realized that shopping the look was not going to be enough. It was, you can only tell, but so now mind you, I didn't have access to the fashion houses at the time. So retail was the only point of reference. Now this is starting out and black music wasn't necessarily a crossover pop culture like it is now. It was not even, we weren't a rock band, you know, it wasn't country music. Um, It was, you might as well say it was secular music. It was very kind of, it was, almost like gangster music, right? It just wasn't, it just wasn't part of the conversation if you were outside of that world and environment. And I was able to change the narrative and storytell, not just through shopping the look, but designing the look mm-hmm. and creating and, and, and starting to storytell. Because anything I, obviously, you know, retail is very ready to wear. It's very, you know, it's, it's consumer facing. It's, you know, it's not um, disruptive enough for what I had planned and plotted. 
And I did have a plan and I was plotting. And, you know, there were two aspects. There was my brand and then the building of theirs. And be able to maintain the, the integrity of both was very key. It was paramount to me. You know, that's how it started. Me taking, you know, not asking for permission, taking creative license to storytell and change a narrative of whatever artists I worked with. And, you know, really encouraging them and pushing them out of their comfort zone mm-hmm. and allowing them to understand what playing a role in a character is. And just because the lyrical content says this doesn't mean that you can't visually look like this. And I said, actually, it disrupts it so much more. It's how we brought high fashion into the world of urban music. And we started to change what gave it a facelift. We started to change the perspective. And I think all of those little things and how I took sportswear and evolved its sportswear into luxury lifestyle, Uh how couture became something that was not just done in Paris, but done right here in, in New York City. I was creating couture pieces for celebrities right here, you know, in America. And no one talks about that. I love the fact that you have referred to yourself as an image architect because it really kind of flashes out all those multifacets that you you have been doing. And you really are like one of the main people responsible for luxury sportswear today. And, you, you know, you were the person that was that started connecting the artist with the brands. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, I thought it was, you know, initially before the brands let us in, we had to get their attention. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, like Jay-Z's first suit that he wore was not Armani. It was a, a custom suit that I custom design firm. It was a linen yellow suit, soft shoulders. So it had the Armani attributes because, you know, I love the Italian soft shoulder for a guy who's never worn a suit necessarily, wasn't necessarily comfortable. So I wanted to it to have a leisure approach but still enough confidence as he could just kind of build into it. I mean, we went from a very soft shoulder to a Tom Ford structured shoulder. We went from taking very, you know, you think about Puffy and Mace in the 90s, the shiny red suits. You know, that was a mechanic suit, flight suit. That was a denim jacket silhouette and a baggy jean silhouette, but made in luxury fabrics. Taking nylon and covering or plastic thinking more futuristic. And this was something that you saw a couple of years, maybe a year or something later on the runways of Dolce and & Gabbana. And you would start to see kind of, and even the metallic pieces, even today, I still see them. You know, you have, you know, designers constantly referencing my work from the 90s, Marc Jacobs, Virgil Abloh, Dolce & Gabbana. You see them, you see them, you know, these things happening. So taking sportswear silhouettes and marrying them with, you know, uh, luxury fabrication was, you know, uh, just a different approach. Mm-hmm. You know, th- when you think about basketball, I worked, I did a job with the NBA in the late 90s, early 2000s, and I did a retrospective uh, collection for them, past, present, and future. And I, that's when I designed my first basketball jersey dress. And you look at now all of the basketball jersey dresses, but I did this, no one knows, I hadn't seen it anywhere else. I was like, oh, this was an oversized basketball jersey. I want to put on a very long model. And I, you know, had it tailored and contoured and taken in, give her an hourglass shape. And we made this oversized jersey into a dress. And it was those kind of little things, me just kind of taking sportswear and really making it more lifestyle. I think no one looked at things that had performance. They didn't look to make it 
they, they weren't seeing it in that place. So I love to take things out of context. I love to disrupt things. I love the idea of taking a couture, get, finally getting into the fashion houses after we got their attention. Amani finally came from, you know, Jay-Z. We finally started to have these collaborative experiences after, you know, creating all these images that really got them to, to recognize that we were a genre and a force to be reckoned with. And we were also impacting retail that the consumer was starting to look for some of the things they saw in these powerful music videos and editorial images and advertising images. They started to recognize that. And it was for us, by us. And they didn't have a choice but to, um, to start to collaborate because we were not only the consumer, but we were driving the consumer. Mm-hmm. And, and that was sometimes had more value than an ad campaign you know, then a red carpet moment. What pop culture, what hip hop culture was doing, which is now hip hop culture um, and how I've always seen it. My goal was to get MTV, VH1, all the crossover visual, you know, um, outlets to cover the music, to make it popular music mm-hmm. so that we wouldn't be in a box, so right. that culturally there would be no segregation. And look at it now. I know. <laughs> the genre is loved globally by every race and every creed. And it's just what was my dream is to find myself in a, in a space that I knew had the ability to be greater and grander and, and part of, you know, my story as well. And remember, we talked earlier about me protecting the integrity of my brand. I did jobs that were meaningful. I, I, I collaborated. I always took a very, even if I was in the driver's seat, I always made my client, my muse feel the collaborativeness of the moment, because at the end of the day, this has really very little to do with me, but more so about how they're going to deliver and convey the look. They have to perform it. You know, a costumer can build the costume, but the costume designer can't give it life. And, you know, it's like, it's what lyrics are to music is what style is to fashion. Yeah, absolutely. It gives it a voice. It makes it tangible. And that's what I... I make very clear to the subject, this doesn't work without you. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't feel natural to self or the character, let's keep, let's keep searching until we find it. That's part of the character development process. That's part of the discovery process. That's the stylology of it. And I think I'm always taking that along the way with me. I still keep those footnotes. I still reference those things from when I started to where I am now. And I'm still under construction, finding new ways to reinvent myself. This partnership with Puma really allows me to speak to a a consumer that I I feel is looking for more in a particular fashion genre sector. And I feel like sportswear is another place that we can kind of disrupt a little bit. Mm -hmm. And because we've been under quarantine for a year, the timing (laughs) could not be We're ready, man. We're ready. Yeah. I think, you know... What we're doing in terms of in the women's space with women in basketball is the first collection that I created directed is really highlighting, talking about what's being talked about now. And that's the inequalities in women in sports. The Title IX conversation is happening more and more than ever now. And the time's up. And we are holding everyone's foot to the fire. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, I think that... um, Good trouble, good trouble. Is, yeah, good trouble. It allows us, it, I want to use this platform to amplify certain, um, you know, um, causes, conversations, 
and really be effective the way I was effective in in the world of uh, music and hip hop, pop culture. And, you know, it's interesting because I worked, I didn't just work with hip hop artists, you know, I worked with boy bands. I worked with, you know, I've worked with anyone from Backstreet Boys to Dave Matthews Band. I've worked with um, country singers. I've worked with, you know, uh, tons of female pop singers, you know. Mariah Carey was in the pop space, but loved hip hop. You know, like, you know, Alicia Keys was in the pop space, but loved hip hop, you know. So it's like, you know, finding, navigating my way through, you know, so many different types. And then also working in advertising and working in um, in print and editorial. So I've really had the full experience, you know, television, film of, of, of the job, of what it requires. And I've been extremely fortunate. Um, to still feel like I'm still on the on a journey to discover new things about myself and about about my craft and my art and my ability, you know. I'm so glad that you brought up this work, um, Disruptor, because this probably would not be a proper interview if we did not talk about your work with Missy Elliott, which is actually how I came to know your work t- more than 20 wow. years ago. So um, when you were two. <laughs> 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 no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I think, I think you and I are about the same age. Close, 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 close. And if any of our listeners, you know, don't already know the video for the rain, um, if you know, you do know it's from 1997, the amazing inflatable suit that you created for her. If, if you don't know the video, get yourself over to YouTube immediately to watch. So, you know, we're talking about disruption. I mean, this in the very best possible way was an audacious video at the time. And I think like a lot of people, there was kind of like the moment in my life, like before I saw that video and then the moment after I saw that video, (laughs) um, my brain just kind of exploded. So can you tell us a little bit about how that video came to be and also some of your work with Missy? Yes. Um, Well, you can't mention Missy without mentioning uh, director Hype Williams. He was the creative genius behind, you know, using the fisheye lens, the cinematography and the direction and the treatment and the ideas, you know, really started with him. And he was such a great uh, collaborator in that way. You know, Missy was a new artist and she was so gracious and so open and ready to just kind of just do it you know there was she was so game and I think that's what you know as a creative like she had this incredible body of music and she trusted to collaborate with two other creatives Hype and myself and I think because we all trusted each other's ability so well that we were able to really have this kind of fun we were able to think about what you saw in that video not only did you see you know us making size you know, full, you know, uh, body, this was kind of addressing what Lizzo is addressing now, mm-hmm. you know, self-love, body conscious issues, just addressing body positivity. So here's a girl and, you know, a woman in hip hop, you know, they were expected to be provocative if the lyrical content was provocative and Missy's lyrical content was very provocative, that she should look provocative, but she was actually a complete dichotomy of that. And I think that's what really also really helped the narrative too that we create made her even bigger and we you know we created this kind of you know the treatment had called for a michelin man like you know 
And I said, we can make her a white marshmallow. And I, I love, I love shiny. And I loved, I would always come to hype with fabric and materials. And I'm like, what about this patent leather? And he was in the archives of Alan Mickley with the flame glasses. And he, he actually found the flame glasses. I remember um, us having to get this insurance to get Alan Mickley himself to allow us to take them out of archive. They had never been used wow. um, ever. And so that was a huge, huge deal. And it was those kind of things, you know, those kind of collaborative moments, I think, made the work even that much special. And then also look what we did with the, with the female dancers. We put them in men's briefs, Timberland boots, men's tank tops, and raincoats. Amazing. These are female dancers, right? <laughs> so it's just like kind of like, you know, it's like it was me saying under construction was the name of like, I think the album at the time, maybe it was under construction. Maybe I'm making that up, but I love the word. And I, I you know, I, at the time I was like, women could be construction workers. Mm-hmm. Why can't women wear Timberlands? You know, and women are ballsy. Why can't we wear men's briefs? And I really kind of attacked it in that way, which, you know, these, those are really powerful, bold statements mm-hmm. for the time. Yeah, because this is the late 90s that we're talking about. And, yeah. and, 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 yeah. and you doing that advanced that conversation forward visually. To, to where we are, you know, 30, no, not quite, you know, 25 years later. Yeah, it's over. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of big deal projects, um, I think that many of our listeners have probably seen one of your more recent music videos, which is, of course, for the track Ape Shit um, on Jay-Z and Beyonce's album, The Carters. And it was filmed in the Louvre, which had to be an incredible experience, not to mention a sheer feat of organization and permits, et cetera, et cetera. What was that like? I mean, please understand that no artist has ever shot at the Louvre. Yeah. No genre, no no one, <laughs> a music video at the Louvre. That was huge. And it was, we spent the night at the Louvre. It was like a dream sequence. You almost couldn't believe it was happening. The fact that I have a picture of myself in front of the Mona Lisa (laughs) with no one else around me, you think it's like a spoof. It's Uh just, you know, and, you know, I remember when I posted on Instagram, people were like, well, is this real? Because like every time I've been at the Louvre, there's been a crowd, (laughs) you know, um, but we spent the night at the museum. So um, we made another movie and, you know, I worked, you know, I, my, my, Focus was solely Jay, and he had about eight to nine changes. And we were doing this, we shot this video in the middle of us preparing to start the tour. We had been in Paris for over a month, mm-hmm. and like it was like 40 something days at that point. And it was just, um, it was so much fun finding the right textures, the right colors. And I really wanted to play with mosaic things. I really wanted to bring regality into it. I really wanted to push the envelope mm-hmm. with him in terms of like the satin, you know, um, and, and working with Dries Van Noten, working with Jean Galliano. I mean, these are designers that, you know, Jean Galliano, you wouldn't see, you wouldn't typically expect to see Jay in. Again, being able to find those, that right symphony between him and Beyonce was such such a treat you know and it really happened very kind of fluidly the color the color you know the colored suit and we would 
it was such a collaborative between her team and my and and my team. It was so much fun, kind of just saying, you know, who takes the lead on what look, you know, and then where it goes from there. It was a lot of fun. One of my very favorite scenes, and if you'll let me, um, just art history, fashion history dork out here for a second, um, is is there's this really like expansive, like monumental scene where it's Beyonce and her dancers, and they're all in a line in front of this Jacques-Louis David painting from 1807, which depicts the coronation of Napoleon and Empress Josephine. And Intentional. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, 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 of course. I mean, there's very specific thought and reasons why specific artworks were, were selected, but that that could be a whole other podcast probably. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but that painting, I don't know how much you know about its history, but it has two, not just one, but two really cool links back to the profession of stylist and costume designer because the whole coronation, they actually hired an artist to put it on to produce it. And he actually styled it down to exactly what they were wearing. Yeah, that's great. I didn't know that. Yeah, his name was Jean-Baptiste Isabelle. And then he also published like a set of 32 drawings of the event as well, which is really cool. Um, So Josephine had a stylist at this time, and he was out there like putting her image out into public. But then also David, as the painter of the work, during the French Revolution, the Convention Nationale um, hired him to design a French national quote-unquote uniform because during the revolution, um, a lot of the class divisions were indicated um, by fashion. And so they were trying to eradicate those class distinctions, you know, portrayed by dress. And so they hired him to basically invent a French national costume. And not very many people actually adopted it. A few did. They were largely like avant-garde thinkers and academics. But I just thought that was such a cool connection back to your career because this profession stylist, costume, you know, fashion designer, image architect, it's it's been a job for over two centuries. That is a great dork out. That was... <laughs> I'm in awe of you right now. That was, that, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just, I don't know, it's just so fun to think about when I saw that painting. I was like, oh, this we talked is about so it good. When we were shooting it, we talked about it, but not that in depth. And that was like a whole complete um, history lesson. That was awesome. Well, that's what we do on Dressed. <laughs> well, now, you know, I'm like Googling, ready to get the book and dive into it. And I'm going to spend the rest of my day sucking it up because that's what I do. So I want to talk to you a little bit about your use of color because I watched so many of your videos kind of back to back to back. And I I had a realization that you really love color. And a lot of times you use it in kind of entire monochromatic palettes. I mean, they, they might be super bright, but it might be like all tonal, like all pinks or all blues. Would you tell us a little bit about your relationship with your use of color? Color is something that I spend a lot of time on. Um, I spend, it's interesting that you ask that because when I'm working on a music video, I'm always, the first thing I ask is, who's the DP? You know, I always want to talk to the DP and I always want to, you know, make sure that in theory that I'm addressing using the right color so that we can get the most brilliance and the most performance. And I also use, you know, color in shadowing and, you know, and, creating depth and tricking the eye for, you know, certain subjects, you know, whether it's layering with it or, 
But I also love using the unexpected colors, like the idea of putting a man in, in a lavender or a pink suit back in you know the 90s and especially in the hip hop culture where everything was so black and white, Mm -hmm. that was very disruptive, you know, and I love the idea of the non-gender binary kind of approach to um, color and silhouettes. Mm -hmm. You know, what the work I did with Buster Rhymes, he was wearing halter tops and long gowns and, you know, garbs and drapes that were quite feminine and working with lace and and chamoose and very feminine, you know, fabrics. And this was, you know, a guy who bared a lot of machismo, mm-hmm. you know, but I love the, I, again, I love the idea of taking color, playing with color. I love recently, uh, as of recently, I played a lot with uh, Neon, w- working with Missy uh, Elliott's video, Cool Off. And that was really fun, just dealing with primary colors and neons and then finding the ground that kind of keeps it, uh, that earths the look. So color is very important to me. And I think it's not only an expression of uh, speech, but I think it's also an emotional expression too. I, I, I use it to invoke emotion as well. I think it's something to be said about relating back to the character, how it makes the character feel, what's the tone. You know, I always kind of take all of those things into consideration. We're, we're about out of time, but I would love to chat with you a little bit about the new chapter of your career, because in October of uh, last year, so October 2020, you were named the creative director of Puma. So how did this come to fruition? And I'm hoping that you might share some of your thoughts on kind of like Puma's history and legacy within American sportswear. Well, I always, I felt, I've always felt that, you know, Puma has been involved, you know, in, in key cultural moments, you know, from Tommy Smith wearing the suede in 1960, the Clive Frazier shoe in 73, the whole B-boy in the 80s, and they were so relevant in the 90s. So it has a very rich history. Yeah. Um, you know, the Ralph Sampson's dropped in 84, the Jordans dropped in 85. So just, they were really um, ahead of the game in, in, in many ways. And I think a lot of that gets kind of somewhat overshadowed, but that's okay. It's still, I still think that there's some really great heritage pieces and things that we can, that say classic and iconoclast that I really want to tap into um, and tote as a badge of honor. But, you know, I, I think that you know, I'm remaining, you know, what it means to be, I think that, you know, it's important that I bring style to sports mm-hmm. in this particular space taking a style by design approach with everything, you know, and I'm hoping that, you know, I continue to empower women and and youth through sports. That's what my goal is for, you know, working with the brand. June, thank you so much for your being so generous with your time today. It was such a delight to talk to you. I've been watching your work for more than 20 years. So um, I, I got super excited when we had the opportunity to chat with you. No, thank you. Thank you for for everything, actually, but really for getting my my creative juices bubbling right now because all I want to do is go back to the Louvre. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. June, we cannot thank you enough for taking the time out of, I'm sure, your incredibly hectic schedule to share your incredible career journey with our listeners. April, is there anything June cannot do? I don't think so. I, I think she's a superwoman. <laughs> um, and Cass, you know this, but I'm going to share a little inside secret here with our listeners because I was fangirling 
so hard during this interview. You know, as fashion historians, we do lots of public lectures. And of course, we do the podcast twice a week. And and if you teach, um, you know, students in the classroom, you really get comfortable just speaking to anybody and kind of, you know, public speaking. But I was actually nervous during this interview just because (laughs) I'm such a huge fan of hers. I mean, what, what do you say to somebody who has literally shaped fashion history in such a profound way. Yeah, I mean, I think you guys had a wonderful conversation and I'm sure our listeners will join me when I say that. And I mean, she really is going to continue to shape fashion history as the creative director of Puma. We cannot wait to see what she has in store for us. Yes, and I definitely want one of the basketball dresses that she's doing for Puma, which are going to come out soon. So I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the very real legacy of June's work residing in your closet next time you get dressed. Please join us on Thursday for our next episode of Dressed. And we do love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us with questions or episode suggestions, you can DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast which is, of course, where we post images for each week's episodes. You can also email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. And if you have a moment to rate and review our show on your podcast platform of choice, would be very much appreciated. Also appreciated are our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each week. We will catch you on Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.